When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. The verdict has just been read by Judge Peter Cahill in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the trial against Derek Chauvin, of course, accused three charges, and he was found guilty on all three charges of second degree, third degree, and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. Uh, The Judge Cahill thanking the jury for what he said, heavy-duty service, heavy-duty jury service. Uh, At the same time, I just want to, for our radio audience, uh, Derek Chauvin uh, sitting in uh, the courtroom, of course, with his defense lawyer uh, with a mask, as we are all, of course, still dealing with the pandemic, but listening um, rather quietly, rather calmly, as the judge did read those verdicts. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Radio here. I do want to bring in uh, Bloomberg News legal analyst, uh, June Grasso. So June, all three charges, he was found guilty. You know, even though we talked about this being a possibility, still to hear them say guilty time after time, it's it sort of takes you back. It, mm-hmm. it, you, uh, it's something that, you know, especially when you're in a courtroom, hearing that is just something that sends shockwaves through you. But you can imagine Derek Chauvin hearing that. Now, I watched, and you can't tell that much because he had a mask on, but he didn't make, he just kept looking at right. the judge. He didn't make any motion at all. He didn't, you know, may have blinked his eyes, but that's about it. So he was prepared for this verdict in some way. I think probably, as we talked about before, the fact that it came back so fast, his defense attorney probably told him, you know, what to expect. And once you hear the first verdict, because they start with the most serious charge, once you heard the guilty on that, it seemed like it would be like dominoes after that. I agree. I totally agreed. Uh, Eric Chauvin, we do want to just give kind of the visual here. He has been taken from the courtroom already, uh, taken away in handcuffs. Uh, I'm here with uh, June Grasso and also Jeannie Sean Zeno and Rick Davis of Bloomberg Sound On. But I do want to bring in Krista Gorshek. She is former public defender and current managing partner at Gorshek Law and joining us here on on the phone, Krista, all three charges uh, found guilty. What are your thoughts here uh, following this verdict? Well, um, I, I agree with June. Um, you know, hearing the word guilty three times mm-hmm. you know, sort of takes your breath away, especially when you appreciate you know, the gravity of the situation, not just from the viewpoint of the citizens of Minneapolis, but also really across the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, know that there's been a number of police officers um, who um, have caused death uh, in the line of, of duty, and, and sometimes they haven't even been charged, and we know others have been charged, and most have been acquitted. Um, so this is uh, quite a monumentous verdict. Um, I had told my uh, staff here at Bolshek Law that if it was a fast verdict, it was really one way or the other, right? Mm-hmm. It was either a fast guilty or it was a fast not guilty, right? And in, in, in my experience as a practicing trial attorney, um, and I've uh, litigated a fair number of jurors, 
It's interesting just to even watch social media here that uh, so many people weighing in uh, and there does seem to be a little bit of a sigh of relief, uh, certainly um, across the country, across the world, there are shots being shown. Let me um, remind everyone that, of course, uh, we did get the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin, uh, the former Minneapolis police officer, of course, who knelt on George Floyd's neck. He was found guilty on all three accounts, second and third degree murder, also manslaughter. We are expecting to hear from the Minnesota Attorney General, and we will take you there as soon as uh, they begin speaking. President Joe Biden is also expected to make some comments as well, and we'll also bring those to you as well. I do think, and I want to bring back in Rick Davis, a political contributor to us here at Bloomberg News, has worked on the campaign of uh, John McCain. So, Rick, I do wonder politically, what do we need to get from our leaders right now following this verdict? You know, it's uh, it's it's almost the best possible political outcome if you're uh, a political leader, because uh, if it had been anything other than guilty uh, on all three counts, the, the question would have arised, what are we going to wake up to tomorrow? You know, will there be riots? Uh, will there be disorderly activity, especially in urban areas? We saw uh, the, the National Guard was called out in, in, in Minneapolis. The Hennepin County Government Center was completely surrounded, boarded up. So I think that this, this will be you know, everyone's opportunity to take a step back contemplate what kind of reforms are needed. I'm sure we'll start to hear from political leaders like the Attorney General and the President about the need for police reform. Many states have already acted based on the initial uh, act of violence that occurred, um, started reforming uh, different elements of their uh, police functions, uh, which is unusual because typically states don't get in the knickers of, uh, of local police departments. And so you already see a migration to something different. Will the left overreach and start talking about defunding police and start that political debate again? Yet to be seen, but right now we're hoping to hear sort of uh, pragmatic responses from our leaders. June Grasso, come on in on this, Bloomberg News legal analyst. In terms of the sentencing guidelines, you talked about it earlier. Let's remind our audience what's at stake here for Derek Chauvin. And, and my understanding, I'm just looking at some things that are crossing here, that it may be eight weeks before we know the sentencing, but uh, let's get from let's get your expertise because this is your world. I didn't hear him, uh, I didn't hear the judge set a date for sentencing. Mm -hmm. So before sentencing, even if it's someone like a police officer that you know doesn't have uh, anything too bad in his in his background, they're going to do, um, the parole office is going to do different kinds of uh, interviews and make a recommendation as far as sentencing, if Minnesota is like most other states. Now, as, as we said before, you know, the second degree unintentional murder or the felony murder is supposed to carry up to 40 years and the third degree up to 25 years and the second degree up to 10. But the Minnesota sentencing guidelines recommend about 12 and a half years in prison for each murder charge and four years for the manslaughter charge. And the judge would also decide to decide whether or not those are going to run consecutively or whether they're going to run concurrently. So there's a lot on the judge's uh, plate right now as far as sentencing and also the prosecutors are seeking um, sentencing above the guideline range. So they're, they're alleging that there are aggravating factors, one being that he was a police officer in the course of his duties, another being that he was surrounded by a lot of children were watching this. So there might there have to be a he at the hearing, I suspect at the sentencing hearing, you're going to hear those. And this is all going to be on the judge's plate. And it's going to be, it's also going to be a very political kind of, you know, uh, influence on what he's going to do. Is he going to do what he would normally do with a with a police officer who's been sentenced? Or is he going to do what what the you know what the uh, activists and the the uh, demand justice activists are asking for, which I'm sure is a maximum sentence. 
Right, exactly. Hey, just want to mention, uh, we thought that maybe the president, President Biden, may make some comments. It is unclear whether or not he will make comments on the verdict in the uh, case against uh, Derek Chauvin. Um, Jeannie, you know, it's it's this is obviously a big deal, a very big moment in time, and and a lot to think about. There absolutely is, and and I wanted to, you know, I'm curious, uh, uh, and I wanted to ask Chris to this. It. it is it likely that we hear from some of these jurors? I, I, I assume that it is up to them if they want to speak publicly. But do you suspect we'll hear how they came to this decision and what moved them? I think that's definitely possible under the circumstances of um, all three guilty verdicts. Uh, it would have, I think, very likely been the case where if they had found him not guilty or acquitted him entirely, they wouldn't want their identities to be known. Perhaps now, uh, with these verdicts in place, they'll be willing to discuss, you know, what mattered to them, what stood out to them, um, what seemed not to make sense to them, and ultimately um, how they came to their verdict. It is entirely up to them. Um, Judge Galen Hill will likely tell them that that will be their decision, um, and he will um, leave that to them. Of course, um, I'm sure there are procedures in place uh, where if they don't wish to have their identities uh, known, that they will be protected um, and they'll be allowed to somehow get out of uh, the courthouse uh, without a whole bunch of hoopla. You know, I was wondering uh, if uh, you could uh, uh, respond to uh, questions about Judge Peter Coville. I mean, his comments... Uh, telling the uh, jury that they have just gone through heavy duty jury duty. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, uh, in many high profile cases, the judge himself becomes quite a, uh, a controversial figure. What's your reaction to how Judge Coville has handled this case? Krista? I think he's been very sensitive uh, with regard to the jury, for sure. And, I, and, you know, we saw early on he was getting text messages from um, retired judges who were telling him that the jurors' faces could be seen in the plexiglass, and they quickly changed that. Um, I think that he uh, has struck a balance of letting this trial be public without compromising their identities so as to not uh, make the jury feel intimidated. With regard to some of the other calls that he made, um, you know, at some points it seems that he made calls for the defense early on. At other times it seemed like he had made some calls for the prosecution. And I think if you added it all up, um, he was actually pretty fair to both sides as it went along. I saw Judge Cahill allowing both sides a fair amount of latitude, whereas uh, in day-to-day -day regular practice, he tends to be very no-nonsense, moves the cases along, will sometimes interject uh, himself into jury selection, will sometimes uh, limit uh, argument uh, because he wants to keep things moving. Um, and get right to the point. I think he gave both sides a fair amount of latitude that he might not otherwise have been inclined to, simply because uh, this was a story and this was a situation that demanded it. It, it required that both sides uh, have an opportunity to say everything they needed to say for, have, for however long that they needed to say it. I mean, we saw that in, in closing arguments. Even. Uh, yeah. It appeared he was innocent to, in, to interrupt a Nelson You are listening to Bloomberg Radio right now. We are doing live coverage of the verdict in the killing of George Floyd. Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes last May, convicted of second-degree murder in his... Well, is described as a politically explosive trial. We know that it was uh, 15 days of a trial, 45 witnesses, less than 11 hours for the jury to deliberate. There were three charges, uh, second, third degree murder and manslaughter. We were just all talking with our roundtable uh, a little chilling to hear uh, the guilty verdicts in each of those three charges specifically. With me right now is Bloomberg News legal analyst June Grosso and also the team on Sound, in, Sound On, excuse me, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. They are Bloomberg political contributors. And we also have with us too uh, right now uh, Krista uh, Gorshek. She's former public defender, current manage managing partner at Gorshek Law. And so Krista, I guess what I'm thinking is it's not over, there's sentencing, but there's also an appeal. As a former public defender, is it just a case that you appeal because you can legally, or is it that you do it because you think you can win the second time around? How do you see it? 
Well, appeals are always hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's less success at the appellate courts uh, than there is at the trial courts. And quite frankly, I prefer to be a trial lawyer than an appellate lawyer, <laughs> in part for that reason, um, but but more so in part because of what unfolds in a courtroom. But um, well, what I will say here is that there appears to be a number of different things that appeal, excuse me, appear to be appeal worthy. Um, we know that there was a move for a change of venue early on that was denied. There's been allegations of prosecutorial misconduct of uh, discovery uh, coming in late or coming in uh, in repetitive chunks with the new items kind of buried at the bottom. We know that the settlement that the family reached during jury selection certainly um, was a significant concern to the defense. There was the uh, officers who uh, shot and killed an African-American man in Brooklyn Center in the middle of the trial, and the jury was sequestered, uh, so they likely heard about that. Uh, we know that um, very um, prominent civil rights uh, leaders and figures like Al Sharpton, you know, have been in town, and they've been very vocal. We know that our governor and uh, has been very vocal. Our mayor has been very vocal, and certainly the jury um, had to have heard of all of this, but most notable and, and lastly notable was um, Representative Maxine Waters of California uh, came to Minnesota, was engaged in the Brooklyn Center protests, and was very vocal in saying that if there was an acquittal, um, that in fact people should take to the streets. And, and I think it's fair to say uh, she implied that uh, people should should protest. And I do... And I, I, Hold on for a I'm second. Sorry, no, that's okay. I know June's going to come in on this, and I just want to paint a visual. We are looking at um, shots in Minneapolis uh, outside the courthouse, and you are seeing a lot of people around there. Some people, uh, obviously, uh, there's hugs, there's reactions, but it's very calm in terms of reactions uh, to that verdict. And I, forgive me, Krista, I know you wanted to finish that thought. Oh, all I was going to say is that, you know, when we've got a public fi- figure again, uh, in, in Minneapolis, while the jurors are not sequestered and the trial is still pending, telling people to take to the streets that there's an acquittal, I mean, I think that is tantamount to potential jury intimidation. And so all of these things, when you bring them together, amount to um, some really, um, I think, strong and varied um, grounds for appeal. We've also got the murder three chart that was reinstated contrary to long-standing precedent. So it's just a lot this case, there's a lot of grounds, I think, for a, val- a very valid appeal to put forward. So you talked about Judge Cahill being very fair and reasonable in this trial, and of course we saw it, and if he hadn't been, we would have heard about it. So, But what about as far as sentencing? Is he known as a tough sentencing judge or not? Uh, I, I would say yes, he's known to be a tough sentencing judge, and he certainly isn't afraid to grant um, upward departures. Um, I have seen him, um, on the other hand, where he had the opportunity, where there was a case where the state has, has asked for upward um, uh, sentences, and he said no, but he delivered a very harsh, harsh message while agreeing to a lower sentence. So, um, you know, I've seen him do both, but I, I certainly think in a case like this that he will give a whole lot of thought to uh, granting an upward departure. Because as we were talking about before with Carol, there's got to be a lot of, going to be a lot of pressure on him to grant an upward departure and, you know, to put Derek Chauvin away for the maximum amount of time possible. I I think that's 100% true. I I think that pressure exists, um, and I'm sure he will consider um, the arguments of the attorneys and ultimately what he thinks is fair. I just want to mention, too, that, again, let's just rehash. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. We are going live. We have just covered uh, the jury reaching a verdict in the trial against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. He was found guilty on all three charges against him, a second degree, a third degree murder, and also manslaughter charge. Uh, I'm I'm also seeing some headlines uh, moving around here in terms of his bail being revoked. That's probably not a surprise, and it looks like sentencing perhaps in about eight weeks' time. Um, June June Grosso, our Bloomberg News legal analyst who's with us. Uh, bail revoked, that's pretty standard, I would assume, or is it not? I, I think in a case like this, you'd be surprised if he, you know, got to walk out of the courtroom. And I think that's as much, you know, the the, the gravity of the, of the verdict against him, the three murder charges, but also just 
the the intensity of what's happening around the courthouse and um, wanting, I think, you know, to keep, let, let's face it, I think that if he had been released on some kind of bail or bond, there would have been an uproar about it because he's obviously going to prison. So, right. you know, start now, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't surprised at all. I don't know if Krista was, but I wasn't surprised at all that he was remanded. You and Carol are talking about these three charges. One of the things that I've um, heard a lot from students is why was he not charged with first degree murder? If we have this videotape, the evidence seems um, so clear to so many of us. Why not charge him with first degree murder? I'm going to let Krista take that one since since she's in Minneapolis and there have been some some laws in Minneapolis that have sort of befuddled me. <laughs> sure, fair enough. Um, you know, that question crossed my mind at the beginning of all of this. Um, but remember, uh, there has to be some kind of premeditation or planning um, if there's to be a first degree uh, murder uh, charge and, and conviction. And in this case, um, certainly there could have been an argument that he formed the intent in the moment that he was going to kill him. But I think it's a pretty hard sell that in front of everybody, his own camera on, that he was going to decide in that moment to just kill this man. Um, I, I think uh, if there was to be that charge, there could very well likely have been a backlash from the jury. And quite frankly, it could have actually positioned him for an acquittal. Um, because that, I think, would be a difficult charge to prove under the circumstances, and it might have actually given the defense some leverage. So keep in mind also, as it relates to first-degree um, murder charges, there has to be an indictment. So there would have to be, you know, a grand jury panel, and um, the prosecution would have to meet their burden as it relates to even bringing those charges in the first place. That takes some time. Um, there could be controversy with that. Um, you know, perhaps there was other um, motivations for moving to what the prosecution thought was a, a uh, true-in way to convict him. All right, you've been listening to Bloomberg Radio. That, of course, was Krista Gorshek. She's former public defender, current managing partner at Gorshek Law. She is with us, along with Bloomberg News legal analyst June Grosso, also Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno of Sound On. They are Bloomberg political contributors, and we are, of course, covering the ex-cop, of course, Derek Chauvin, former Minneapolis police officer, uh, and the trial and the verdict uh, in his, the case in the murder of George Floyd. He was found guilty on all three charges. I mentioned, though, I've been kind of watching some of the uh, footages, uh, the footage and images outside the courthouse in Minneapolis. And our Fuller uh, Akinobi is uh, on the ground in Minneapolis outside the court courtroom. Uh, Fula, tell me aloud, uh, tell me uh, in terms of what you are seeing. Hey, I, I'm actually outside of George uh, Floyd. I'm outside of the Cup Foods where um, oh, you are. was uh, killed last year. So I'm at George Floyd Square and, and you know, it's really a celebratory mood here um you know i've been here for a few days now and 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 in the lead up to this uh talking to people on the ground it, it just felt like there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of there was a lot of tension in the city uh it was sort of a city on edge and and um you know when when the verdict came down um people here you know celebrating they're, they're clapping they're chanting they're crying and they're hugging each other and, and so it's really a celebratory mood here in george Floyd square what was it like leading up to the reading of the verdict? Uh, we were we were kind of saying how, as uh, Judge Peter Cahill read the charges in each, or read the outcome in each of those three charges, uh, several of our guests saying, you know, a bit chilling, right, to hear him go through them all and then say the outcome of the verdict. But what was it like in the crowd leading up to the reading of the verdict? It was tense. I mean, they had to quiet everyone down because um, someone was playing from the car, someone someone Jeep is parked here, and, and they're they're playing uh, the, the the radio from the car, and, and people are trying to figure out what the what what the verdict was going to be uh, because you know pe- people had people had been gathering and and, and and talking and chanting, and and so you couldn't really hear, and so uh, it wasn't until someone had to come in and quiet down the crowd, and and then let let everyone know that um, you know he was found guilty, and 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 it sort of erupted after that, and so. I'm here, and uh, yeah. you know things. 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 It's a really, really. Uh, again, I would say a celebratory mood here in George Floyd Square. Hey, hey, Fulop. Maybe you could describe a little bit. Um, you know the uh, presence is there. National Guard elements in uh, 
uh, George Floyd Square where you are and uh, or a uh, heavy police presence or has that melted away? Was there any before the verdict? Uh, what was what were the preparations like and and are buildings and businesses uh, boarded up in that area or are they still doing business? Yes. So, you know, George Floyd Square is actually, uh, I would say, a stark contrast uh, to, to the area downtown and the area around the, uh, the courthouse where, I mean, there's razor wire, there's barricades, there's military vehicles, parks, and it's a strong, uh, it's heavy, heavy uh, National Guard presence there as well. Um, and, and all the businesses downtown boarded up, and, and, and there's, there's really not much uh, foot traffic there either, either um, except for in the, you know, direct uh, area. Um, here in George Square, though, they, they, a few blocks around the square have been closed to, to the car traffic, and, and um, it, it's just pedestrians. And you know, as far as I can see, I've just I just did a 360 for you guys. And as far as I can see, I mean, there's no no police, no national guard, nothing like that. Uh, there's just people here celebrating. But the courthouse has been boarded up, right? So there was preparation just in case, Fula. Yeah, yeah. The courthouse, the courthouse, and, and a lot of the city. Um, I would say most of the, outside of George Floyd Square directly, um, the city was was boarded up, and it was, it was on edge in the lead up to this. Really, um, I spoke to one business owner earlier today, and and she talked to me about how she runs a cleaning business. She talked to me about how she was really worried for her staff, um, who mm-hmm. who had to go out, you know, after curfew um, some nights. And she said that you know she was fearful, and, and they were fearful of of, of the, the national guard presence. And they're saying they're they're passing people with. Uh, guns and they're worried about being stopped and and, and, and the like. And so really, like, in the lead up to this, there's, there's a ton of tension on the ground, a ton, a ton of tension in the city. And, and Fula, are you seeing a lot of people from outside Minneapolis? Are, they, are there people who have come in, I mean, aside from reporters who have come to town to uh, await the, the, the verdict and, and either demonstrate or protest? Or are these mostly citizens of Minneapolis? Most of the people I've talked to here um, on the ground, and, and that includes, you know, outside of the courthouse when I've, when I've been over there, um, have been from, from the city. And, and so that's what I've seen so far. I, I, I haven't seen any um, sort of out-of-town, or I haven't talked to any out-of-town uh, folks um, in my reporting so far. Hey, Fula, one thing I do want to get from you is because we are expected uh, comments by the Minnesota governor uh, expected to make a statement to uh, following this verdict. What is it that, again, from the local political leaders where this has been front and center from day one, uh, from that moment uh, in last May when this all happened to George Floyd and it all played out very publicly uh, around the country, what is it that he needs to what what is it that the minnesota governor excuse me needs to do uh and the kind of comments that we expect to maybe possibly hear um you know i i, I haven't really I, I mean really what i've what, what i've heard from people on the ground here uh, in regard to the governor is that that um you know there there was a perhaps a lack of understanding of of what the city needs and, and mm-hmm. what the sort of response the city needed was. Um, again, speaking to business owners, speaking to people on the ground, they, they felt like uh, the response and, and the National Guard presence uh, made them feel less safe than than um, than anything. And so I, I think perhaps you can address questions about uh, uh, the, the reason for, for, for all of the National Guard uh, uh, personnel and, and for, for the, you know, really... The, the militarization of, of downtown uh, uh, Minneapolis. I mean, it looked like a, mm. the area outside the courthouse looked like a, a makeshift military base, uh, almost. Uh, and so, uh, I think it, perhaps you would you would answer questions about that because I think that's what people were uh, most concerned about uh, in the lead up to this. All right, going to leave it there. And of course, we've been talking about Governor Tim Waltz, who's been the governor of Minnesota since 2019. He is a Democrat. And our thanks to Fola Akinabe. He is our Bloomberg News reporter, really giving us um, some thoughts and a visual when it comes to what is going on outside that Minnesota courthouse, uh, that Minneapolis courthouse, following the verdict uh, in the Derek Chauvin case. Uh, Let's uh, just remind you, you are listening, of course, to Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser in our interactive broker studio in uh, Bloomberg headquarters. 
headquarters in New York City. The team that we've got with us is our Bloomberg News legal reporter and analyst, June Grasso. She is with us on the phone. So too is the Sound On team of Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno, and they are joining us as well on the phone. And we're also still here with Krista Gorshek. She's former public defender, current managing partner at Gorshek Law, and she joins us as well. You know, Krista, uh, I do wonder too, what this means though, I talked about a precedent earlier and I know a legal precedent means something specifically, but I do wonder the outcome of this case, what this means, what might be the conversations that should be had and will be had in uh, police uh, offices around the country. Well, for sure, I think the use of force issue is going to be addressed. Um, Obviously there's new, I believe, federal legislation on this point. Um, but I think that there will likely be a lot of conversations about de-escalation and how to do that effectively. Um, we saw from the experts in the Chauvin trial um, where the state's uh, use of force experts sat down and said, look, at this point, he could have done this. At this point, this wasn't happening. He could have done that. At this point, you know, he had these, you know, three sets of options, right? Um no doubt uh, when Mr. Floyd was being put into the back of the squad car, um, we saw him very agitated and upset, and he was difficult to calm. But the use of force experts talked about how there would have been alternatives to, to the situation as opposed to continuing to show force and continuing to respond in that same manner. Right. So, Krista, I would expect an of these Krista, hang on a second, because the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison is making some comments. Let's take you there live. Work has culminated today. I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability, which is the first step towards justice. And now the cause of justice is in your hands. And when I say your hands, I mean the hands of the people of the United States. George Floyd mattered. He was loved by his family and his friends. His death shocked the conscience of our community, our country, the whole world. He was loved by his family and friends. But that isn't why he mattered. He mattered because he was a human being. And there is no way we can turn away from that reality. The people who stopped and raised their voices on May 25th, 2020, were a bouquet of humanity, a phrase I stole from my friend Jerry Blackwell. A bouquet of humanity, old, young, men and women, black and white, a man from the neighborhood just walking to get a drink, a child going to buy a snack with her cousin, an off-duty firefighter on her way to a community garden, brave young women, teenagers, who press record on their cell phones. Why did they stop? They didn't know George Floyd. They didn't know he had a beautiful family. They didn't know he had been a great athlete. And they didn't know he was a proud father or that he had people in his life who loved him. They stopped and raised their voices and they even challenged authority because they saw his humanity. They stopped and they raised their voices because they knew that what they were seeing was wrong. They didn't need to be medical professionals or experts in the use of force. They knew it was wrong and they were right. These community members, this bouquet of humanity, did it again in this trial. They performed simple yet profound acts of courage. They told the truth and they told the whole world the truth about what they saw. They were vindicated by the chief of police, by Minneapolis's longest serving police officer, and by many other police officers who stepped up and testified as to what they saw and to what they knew. What happened on that street was wrong. We owe it and we owe our gratitude to fulfilling their, we owe them our gratitude for fulfilling their civic duty and for their courage in telling the truth. 
to countless people in Minnesota and across the United States who join them in peacefully demanding justice for George Floyd. We say, all of us, thank you. In the coming days, more may seek to express themselves again through petition and demonstration. I urge everyone to honor the legacy of George Floyd by doing so calmly, legally, and peacefully. I urge everyone to continue the journey to transformation and justice. It's in your hands now. I also want to address the Floyd family, if I may. Over the last year, the family of George Floyd had to relive again and again the worst day of their lives when they lost their brother, their father, their friend. I'm profoundly grateful to them for giving us the time we needed to prosecute this case. They have shown the world what grace and class and courage really look like. Although a verdict alone cannot end their pain, I hope it's another step on the long path toward healing for them. There's no replacing your beloved Perry or Floyd, as his friends called him, but he is the one who sparked a worldwide movement, and that's important. We owe our thanks to the men and women of the jury who gave many hours of their time and attention to carefully listening to the evidence, weighing the facts, rendering a verdict. They are regular people from all walks of life, a lot like that bouquet of, of humanity on that corner on May 25th and in that courtroom. They answered the call and they served in a landmark trial. They now deserve to return to their lives. If they ask you to respect their privacy, we ask you to honor that request. I want to acknowledge the remarkable team that helped us prosecute the case. We put everything we had into this prosecution. We presented the best case that we could. And the jury heard us, and we're grateful for that. We had the sole burden of proof in the case. And history shows that winning cases like these can be difficult. I'm proud of every hour, every minute, and every ounce of effort we put in this case. And let me tell you, we spent many hours working on this case, did we not? We, week after week, committee meeting after committee meeting, this team never let up and it never quit. We fought every day and we did it together. The Attorney General's Office together with the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. Thank you, sir. And we did it together. I'm deeply grateful to everyone who worked on the case. Most of these folks will tell you it's a bad idea to put together a team of all Michael Jordans. Nobody would want to pass the ball. This team, that was their true strength, is sharing the load, passing the ball, understanding that all of us together are smarter than any one of us alone. And that worked. Although the verdict has been rendered, this is not the end. In the coming weeks, the court will determine sentencing, and later this summer, we expect to present another case. We will not be talking about that. This verdict reminds us how hard it is to make enduring change. And I just want to finish by sharing some important historical legacy, if you allow me. In 1968, the Kerner Commission was formed to investigate the causes of uprisings across major American cities. And a man named Dr. Kenneth Clark, a famous African-American psychologist, who, along with his equally accomplished psychologist wife, Mamie, contributed to compelling research in the Brown versus Board of Education case. And Dr. Clark testified at the Kerner Commission. And I want to quote you what he said. I read that report, the one in the 1919 riot in Chicago, and it was as if I were reading the report of investigating the committee of the Harlem riot in 1935, the report on investigating the Harlem riot in 1943, and the report of the McCone Commission on the Watts riot. I must say again in candor to you, the members of this commission, it's like a, a kind of an Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture reshown over and over again, the same analysis, the same recommendation, and the same in action. Those are the words of Dr. Clark in 1968. 
Here we are in 1920, excuse me, 2020, 2021. Here we are in 2021, still addressing the same problem. Since Dr. Clark testified, we have seen Rodney King, Admiral Louima, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Laquan McDonald, Stefan Clark, Atiana Jefferson, Anton Black, Breonna Taylor, and now Dante Wright and Adam Toledo. This has to end. We need true justice. That's not one case. That is a social transformation that says that nobody's beneath the law and no one is above it. This verdict reminds us that we must make enduring systemic societal change. More than a month ago, months before George Floyd was murdered, the Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington and I released the recommendations of our working group on reducing deadly force encounters with law enforcement. What all of us in that working group, including law enforcement, wanted is for everyone to go home safe. Anytime someone doesn't, everyone's lives are changed forever. We need to use this verdict as an inflection point. What if we just prevented the problem instead of having to try these cases? We don't want any more community members dying at the hands of law enforcement and their families' lives ruined. We, want, we don't want any more law enforcement members having to face criminal charges and their families' lives ruined. We don't want any more communities torn apart. One way to prevent this is to get into a new relationship where we as a society re-examine the use of force and our old settled assumptions. I'm so proud of Chief Arredondo and the Minneapolis police officers who by their testimony said enough is enough. And another way to prevent it is by acknowledging and lifting up everyone's humanity, helping communities heal and officers be well. Another way to prevent it is with accountability. Passing laws and instituting policies and training is important, but they must be more than words on paper, and there must be accountability for violating them. With this verdict, we have brought some accountability. Finally, this verdict demands us to never give up the hope that we can make enduring change. Generations of people said slavery would never end. Generations said Jim Crow would never end. Generations said women would never be equal to men. Generations said if you were different in any way, you could never be a full and equal member of our society. Today, we have to end this travesty of recurring, enduring, enduring uh, deaths at the hands of law enforcement. Those beliefs uh, are things we have to focus our attention on. And as I now do close, I just want to say to you, the work of our generation is to put unaccountable law enforcement behind us. It's time to transfer the relationship, transform the relationship between community and the people who are sworn uh, to protect them from one that is mistrustful, suspicious, and in some cases terrifying into one that is empathetic, compassionate, and affirming. With that, with that will benefit everyone, including police officers who deserve to serve in a profession that is honored in departments where they don't have to worry about colleagues who don't follow the rules. Now the, that work is in your hands. The work of our generation is to put an end to the vestiges of Jim Crow and the centuries of trauma and finally put an end to racism. We can end it. It doesn't have to be with us into the future if we decide now to have true liberty and justice for all. The work of our generation is to say goodbye to old practices that don't serve us anymore and to put them all behind us. One conviction, even one like this one that creates, even one like this one can create a powerful new opening to shed old practices and reset relationships. So with that, I just wanna say that I do hope that people step forward and understand that nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. You can do something the way like everyday people like Donald Williams and Geneva, Genevieve Hansen and Christopher Martin and Charles McMillan and all those teenagers and young people stepped up and did something. You can do things like help pass the George Floyd 
Justice and Accountability Act. It's in your hands. Let's get the work done. And now I'd like to invite my friend and partner in justice, Michael Freeman, Hennepin County Attorney. All right, you've been listening to the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison there uh, several times talking about accountability, specifically saying, I would not call today's verdict justice, however, justice implies true restoration, but it is accountability, which is the first step toward justice. Of course, the Attorney General there reacting to the verdict and the outcome of the case against Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes last May, convicted of three charges, second-degree murder, uh, third-degree murder, and manslaughter uh, in uh, the trial. Uh, And, of course, uh, that trial was going on for about 15 days. The jurors coming back in under 11 hours there with that verdict. Uh, Our Bloomberg News team right now, I am with Bloomberg News legal analyst uh, June Grasso. She is with us on the phone along with Junie Shanzano and uh, Rick Davis of our Sound On team there in D.C., Bloomberg political contributors. And I want to welcome into the conversation Arisha Hatch, Vice President of Color of Change, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. Keep in mind, too, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, they are expected to make some comments uh, later tonight reacting to that verdict. Arisha, nice to have you here with us as well and the team you know, the attorney general making the point, what if we prevented these cases? We don't want any more police facing charges. We don't want any more families who are facing losses or communities caught up like we did uh, in the case of George Floyd, understandably. So what's your reaction to the verdict today and what we need to do going forward? Well, I'm, I, I'm just, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm sure. thankful for the verdict today. Um, we were, I think we saw a jury see what the rest of the world saw um, last year was that this was like an obvious murder, that this person was obviously guilty of this. Um, and I think uh, the jury coming back so quickly without asking any questions on all three counts and our, all three charges just reiterates that. And I, I think my other reflection is um, how important it is to have uh, an attorney general and Keith Ellison step it like Keith Ellison step into this sort of case, um, having someone who shares the values of the community of the values of the victim that um, they are represented, um, and that and, and he did such he and his office did such a great job of instilling a sense of trust um, in the prosecution's effort, uh, and uh, we saw a level of confidence. Um, uh, and so while I thought this was an obvious result, uh, I don't want to undermine that it's a big deal to have a historical big deal to have uh, a, a police officer held accountable um, at this level. Arisha, do you think that the verdict in this case and the way it was pursued by the authorities in Minnesota will make a difference in future cases? Uh, well, I think what it says is that we're beginning to reach a tipping point in which juries and society generally uh, does not want to continue to normalize this sort of violence on behalf of police. But, you know, as we know, as, uh, as folks that do criminal justice work, criminal justice reform work, uh, our current criminal justice system isn't often isn't a determinant, deterrent to crime. Um, and so just as, uh, uh, you know, there are fundamental changes that need to happen. Uh, what, what we're seeing is that police are being forced to show up to situations where they shouldn't be showing up. And that is leading to escalated instances of violence against, um, a number of different, um, um, people. And so until we can fundamentally change the ways, um, the who, uh, shows up when folks are in need, I think we're going to continue to see these types of things happen. Arisha, you just mentioned, you know, fundamental changes need to happen. And this is one of the things I've heard a lot is that while this case will provide relief and is historic um, and historically a big deal, as you said, it doesn't change the problem that's systematic racism. So are you feeling confident that the Biden administration has prioritized 
the type of reform that you'd like to see? And are you comfortable with his movement away from the commission he promised and the focus on legislation at this point? Um, I think the focus on legislation is important. Um, I think uh, not only the Biden administration, but uh, Congress generally, uh, uh, especially a Democratic majority Congress, deserves uh, or, or owes black the black voters who sort of place them in the majority uh, to address this sort of issue in real ways. Um, I think there's lots of different ways in which um, this can be addressed. We were happy to see um, uh, Biden step away from the commission, um, but we'll be watching very closely uh, his comments later tonight, as well as the actions that are taken uh, to further remedy uh, these types of injustices that still continue in black, brown, and other poor working class communities across the country. Arusha, in the little bit of time we have left, what do you think the impact's going to be on C-suites, not only in the United States, but around the world? Every CEO has been watching this and trying to understand the impact on their business. Your organization has been very active there. How do you think this will resonate? Uh, I think what we what we are seeing, um, what this jury confirms, is that we are moving into a space where racial justice is a majoritarian theme. It's no longer uh, the the opinion of the marginalized or the major or the minority. It is a majority theme, and so. Uh, you know, corporate leaders, folks in C-suites should be thinking about uh, the impact of their businesses on black people and other people of color. Uh, they should be doing the things internally that they should do uh, uh, that reflect uh, the shift in consciousness that we're seeing happen not only in this country, but across, across the globe. Uh, but we are moving into an era where uh, having the excuse of like, I didn't know how my policies affected black people or other people of color. Um, I, I didn't know the impact of the products that we were building. That is no longer a valid excuse, uh, I think, in 2021. All right, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, we really appreciate all of this team coverage. Arisha Hatch, she's Vice President of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization, joining us on the phone in D.C. And, of course, our Sound On team, Jeannie Shanzano, uh, and also Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributors. Because keep in mind, we do expect uh, to hear from President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris later on this evening to react to that verdict. I'm just seeing going around Twitter, uh, uh, that the Floyd family uh, attorney has released a video where President Biden and Vice President Harris called the Floyd family after the guilty verdict. So that is certainly going around uh, in terms of social media circles. And of course, uh, our thanks to uh, uh, all of the uh, contributors who have reacted to what uh, was really big news, obviously, on this Tuesday. Let's just remind you, we did just get that verdict uh, about an hour ago. Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes last May, convicted on all three charges uh, in that politically explosive trial. You've been listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Master. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.